The Movie Bar is a podcast discussing legal films and, as such, may contain content that could be triggering for some people, such as discussions of violence or sex cases, and listener discretion is advised. I'm Bed Roth. And I'm the Dyad. I'm a lawyer. And I'm not. And you're joining us in the Movie Bar. you solemnly swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth to help you, God? How can you even ask me that? Welcome back, Mr. The Dyad Esquire. Thank you, thank you. It's been a minute. <laughs> I, I really did plan to uh, get this one out on the last week and last Monday in March, and uh, life has a way of happening, doesn't it? Yeah, and you know what? You actually... Even though we we're kind of more delayed than you wanted to be, this is about the last day that would work for me before I just get pummeled with work. So you know, <laughs> it ended up fitting in right under the right under the gun. It works out. It works out well. Uh-huh. Um, and you know, with everything that's been happening in uh, in both our lives outside of podcasting, I think it's a it's a good thing we didn't pick a big, heavy, meaty law film to talk about this time. Yeah. A lighthearted so, romp. Yes. Yes. It is definitely both of those things. Um, so for anybody who did not listen to the, uh, the second episode about A Few Good Men, first of all, go back and check it out. I think it was really good. Uh, turned out turned out great. I was a little bit surprised that uh, A Few Good Men actually seemed to be a little bit less legally impressive than My Cousin Vinny. Maybe I shouldn't have been surprised because, you know, we started with My Cousin Vinny. Objection! The diet, you talked about how impressive it was uh, from a legal standpoint. <laughs> Oops. I said my government oh, name. I said it again. Oh, <laughs> oh no. You know, my, my family listens to this now. It started out as just my mom, but now my brothers have gotten on the train, too. So I, I've, that cat's out of the bag big time. Yeah, I've sent it to my dad. I don't think he's listened yet, but I guess he's got a few things going on, so we'll see. And nobody in my yeah. house cares about legal movies, so I'm kind of on my own. But we do have a few, a few listeners. I think we're up to, I saw, seven or eight on the Anchor when I looked recently. I saw Dear Family and my buddy Jeff. <laughs> but, it's a grassroots so, campaign. Yeah, if you're if you're listening, uh, spread the word. We've really been enjoying the show, and as I was saying on our last episode about a few good men, I did end the episode with uh, with an introduction of the movie we're going to be talking about. The movie we have on the docket today, as it were, we're going to be talking about a 1997 comedy. That I watched with my dad a couple of times back when I was in high school. Stars Jeff Daniels and Michael Richards in the leading roles, with uh, Charlize Theron and Jessica Steen in supporting roles, and an excellent, excellent cameo by Rip Torn. And we are talking about the 1997 legal sitcom film Trial and Error. They think that I'm the lawyer now. And that means I have to keep being the lawyer? Fine, I can handle that. New Line Cinema presents... This is fraud. Objection! Leading... Overruled. Beg? No. 
an experienced lawyer. Okay, just breathe. Calm down. And an out-of-work actor. Whenever I step into a courtroom, I think of something a great law professor of mine once said. But that can wait for tomorrow. The defense rests! Trial and error. So, uh, before we get too far into the movie, let me just tell you that <clears throat> there's that opening scene where they're doing like a walk and talk and it's kind of setting the, you know, setting the pace of the movie and it shows that Jeff Daniels is this big shot lawyer and he's got his assistant following him around and just kind of like peppering him with questions. And mm-hmm. I watched the movie initially and I tried to write down what they were talking about just because I wanted to see if any of it made any sense because just listening through it quickly, there were some words that made sense and some legal words in there but like put together it wasn't really <laughs> registering it it was kind of like buzzwords and double talk so after i finished watching the movie i went and found a clip of just the intro and i watched it probably like 10 times trying to match up what they say and trying to determine whether or not it made sense and you know i guess i'll save that for my prosecution and defense but i'm going to tell you this is the most thoroughly researched film because I've, I've watched parts of it more than once. Wow, I'm impressed. I am impressed. This, this one, I didn't expect to get a lot, of, uh, a lot of things right legally. I was expecting to go back and enjoy it. And I've got two first, pages of notes here. See, check that out. Real physical. Here's this Foley for you. Yeah, yep. Since I don't think I'm going to be posting video, <laughs> but you and, I, you and I can see each other for <laughs> once. So, uh, yeah, it's... Uh, I did not take any notes. I, I hadn't seen this movie in probably 20 years, and I just wanted to kind of go in cold and then come away with what I could uh, what I could recall from it. I remember it pretty well. I, I had remembered most of like all the the main beats of it. Uh, I, I realized as I was going through, like I knew how it was going to start, knew how it was going to end, knew some of the high points. But I found myself both enjoying it. But at the same time, being a little bit disappointed because I don't think it lived up to my to my expectation. I haven't fully in my mind sussed out where where it is for me, like as a movie on a on a star scale or anything like that. So I'll kind of be doing that live as I go through my prosecution and defense. But I will say I um I don't regret picking it. I think it's I think it's a good one. Um, a little bit of background here. So, once again, this movie was released in 1997, distributed by New Line Cinema. The director of this movie is Jonathan Lynn. Do you know any other movies that uh, that he directed, Mr. Dadaiad? I don't think so. I mean, I, I could click on, like, you know, find right. him on Wikipedia so, and figure it out, but the name does not ring a bell. Jonathan Lynn is an English stage and film director, producer, writer, and actor. He is known for directing comedy films such as Clue, which is fantastic. I love that one with Tim Curry. Oh, okay. Uh, Nuns on the Run, The Whole Nine Yards, and My Cousin Vinny. Oh, I, did, I did not know that he directed My <laughs> Cousin Vinny. I didn't know Vinny. that when That's I picked this either. Yeah, the director of this movie also directed My Cousin Vinny uh, five years earlier. So, yep. Interesting. That's uh, also a little bit of a Maybe connection with My Cousin Vinny. Maybe that explains that he's got the, the same... Uh, the, Pendleton, is that what his name is? Yep, just the actor Austin, Austin Pendleton. Pendleton was yeah, the yeah. Um, the state's defense attorney that was provided to the two Utes in My Cousin Vinny, uh, the stutterer. <laughs> and in this film, he oh, he he just hams it up as as this judge. <laughs> um, 
We'll get to that, I guess. I'm, I'm sure that you'll have some words about about the judges' performance in this uh, in this movie, but <laughs> but I thought I thought he was really funny. He 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 played a similar role that I, I've seen him play in some of the other films he's been in. That just kind of I can't. I don't even know why I'm here or what I'm doing here. I guess I'm just going to try to enjoy it. Kind of role. Mm -hmm. But basically, to set the stage, uh, Jeff Daniels' character is named Charlie Tuttle. I'm going to try, instead of going back and forth like we've been doing the last couple episodes, I'm just going to try to call him Charlie. And Michael Richards' character is uh, Richard Rietti. I will say up top, um, there are some. Uh, there have been some problematic things with Michael Richards' uh, comedic performances over the years. Um, this podcast about a movie that he has been in is in no way an endorsement of him or his behavior. I just I want to go ahead and lead with that. But uh, he is just um, he's he's playing the role. We can't really talk about the movie without talking about him. So did um, I? Did you have anything to add about that? No, I. Um that, that came up when I was describing the movie to someone and they're like, Oh yeah. What happened to him since, hmm. you know? And I was like, yeah, I don't know. I have not heard anything from him since. And for anybody who doesn't know, I'm not going to go into gory detail about it, but uh, probably Richard's best known role is Kramer in Seinfeld. And, uh, Subsequent to that show ending, he was doing a stand-up episode, and during the stand-up routine, he uh, said at least one racial slur. I think he might have gone off on kind of a tangent, and after that, Mm -hmm. he uh, basically kind of dropped off the map. Um, An early, early example of what is in common parlance called cancel culture, but uh, I think in this case, I mean, he... He got what he deserved. That's my opinion. I'll leave it at that. Uh, you know, it's a it's a free country, but we also are free to experience the consequences of our actions, which may or may not have actually happened in this movie. But we'll get there. <clears throat> so, Charlie <laughs> is a big shot lawyer, as as you alluded to when you were talking about the intro. He is was just has just been made partner in a successful law firm. The um, the owner or one of the major partners in the firm. Uh, he is also um, – his daughter is engaged to Charlie. Uh, her name is Tiffany, and she is the sort of stereotypical spoiled rich girl that you, you get that very, very quickly uh, when, in, uh, when she shows up at the beginning of the film. And then Richard is a longtime, I think maybe even childhood, friend of Charlie's. He is an out-of-work actor, uh, and uh, he's played by Richard's. And he is determined to throw a bachelor party for for his friend before he before he gets married. Uh, at the beginning of the film, you see uh, the, it seems like they haven't been together in a while. Uh, Richard mm-hmm. is very impressed with Charlie's digs, you know, the huge corner office, the city view, and everything. And uh, you you get this real juxtaposition between the two of them. It's like these two guys whose lives have kind of gone on different paths. Hey, 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 hey! Hey! Charlie, this is unbelievable! Wow, this place is big enough to drive a car around in! (laughs) Boy, look at this view! Yeah, I know. Wow! Look at this, what do you got here? But that's not mine. Oh, I see. (laughs) Hey! Yeah, there they go. Man, when'd you get in here? A couple days ago. Wow, what, was it a wedding present? No. They made me partner. 
That's great. Yeah. That's even better, yeah. huh? Thank yeah. you very much. Oh, you got the big desk. Yeah, yeah. yeah. There's... Why don't you... Uh, oh, well, a... yes, of course, <laughs> indeed. <laughs> and another thing, Higgins. You're fired. <laughs> yeah, I had a pretty good audition, too. Some big agents. They really liked me, Charlie. You didn't do your mafia thing. Why shouldn't I do the mafia thing? You should, Charlie. You, you should. It's good. It's good. Rick, Tiffany's gonna be here any second for lunch. I really don't... Well, I want to go over the bachelor party. What? The bachelor party. Oh, Official right. duties of the best man. Oh, yeah. this thing is hilarious. I have to provide you with shelter, and I have to meet your emotional needs leading up to the nuptials. Anyway, to make a long story short, uh, before the wedding and during when he would have had his bachelor party, Charlie is sent to a, a little town called Paradise Bluff in Nevada, where he is requested by his boss to ask for a continuance in a mail fraud case involving his boss's cousin-in-law, who is pretty likely to be found guilty, but the boss just doesn't want to deal with it right now. We find out more about that later. But Charlie drives from California to Paradise Bluff, and there Richard surprises him with a bachelor party. Well, Charlie has one too many of these uh, special drinks that the waitress at the hotel makes for him. We'll come back to her as well. And the next morning, he is uh, – uh, oh, and after he has a couple of them, he tries to provide legal counsel to a couple of guys in the bar who are about to have a fight – and one of them asks, are you a lawyer? <laughs> and he says, yes, I am. And they both uh, knock him out. <laughs> so um, he's prescribed some pills for pain. Uh, and the next morning, when Richard goes in to check on him, he finds out that Charlie has, in a stupor, has taken all of his pain pills. He is completely well, out so of he Richard actually told him the wrong dosage. Oh yes, he transposed okay, yeah. the Correct amount me. of the amount of pills to take and like the period in which to take them. Oh yeah, he's supposed even, to take one every three hours. And he says take three every three hours. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so okay. he uh, so Richard sets him up for him. failure. Right, exactly. Yeah, even then, even in being a uh, a nurse, he is inept. Yes. And you you get that general sense of ineptitude. Richard is kind of a just kind of a screw up. Uh, you get that impression very early. He's he's clever and he he really does in his way. He cares about his friend, but he's just he, uh, he he's a screw up. The stereotypical, you know, uh, underdog guy. And Charlie is very capable, very competent, but you can just tell he uh, he stuck his foot in it in, in this. And um, so he's at a commission the next day when they have to go to the courthouse to ask for the continuance. And thinking he's helping his friend out, Richie goes into the courtroom and poses as Charlie to uh, to ask for the continuance. But the judge, or but sorry. I may be forgetting the order here, but is it is it right then when the prosecuting attorney says, no, there have been too many delays, we need to go ahead and take care of this now, and the judge says, okay, let's do it? Or is that... Yeah, I think he, I think he asks uh, Richard, posing as Charlie, if he mm -hmm. has a response, and because Richard was not expecting that, I think he, he freezes, okay. and then the judge is like, oh, well, okay, I guess we'll... All right then. I guess we'll do the trial. I think that's how it, I, it's been. It's been a little bit since I 
I watched uh, some of the finer details are lost since I, I watched it a gotcha. couple weeks ago. But well, anyway, long story short, uh, it ends up where Richard ends up having to basically take the case because he goes in thinking it's going to be this one-off thing where he's going to ask for this continuance and they're going to go back to California and the trial ends up going through, but he has already posed as Charlie. So can't really, can't really do anything about it now. Anyway, the story kind of goes from there and we'll, we'll get into it once again, as, as always, there will be spoilers in this show, but uh, I think it's, Probably we can go ahead and get into our uh, our prosecution, if you're ready, counselor. Well, actually, before we get into the prosecution, I won't call the, I, this isn't an extensive research, but I will say as sort of an introduction, I did look up a couple of things about the unlicensed practice of law. Um, this probably only take about a minute, but I, I was curious about when it started when when there when there was the prohibition when mm. it, you know came to be and yeah, apparently for a long time there was no prohibition against unlicensed practice of law except for they didn't want non-lawyers to be in the courtroom like doing the trials so up until the 30s you could do like the research and preparation of you know i, I guess preparation of briefs and things like that but um in the late 30s, the American Bar Association made its first committee on the unlicensed practice of law. And um, at the time, there was this big backlash that it was going to create this unjustified monopoly protection for lawyers. And uh, people were like up in arms about it. But then they sort of came to accept that law is a very specialized field and uh, eventually started to see it as, you know, beneficial because it sort of protects the people who need lawyers. Hmm. Um, the only other thing I wanted to point out is that I learned that the real problem, the real sticking point in a lot of these cases is the definition of what practice of law actually means. You might be familiar with some entities like LegalZoom and other like document preparation websites. Mm -hmm. And there's this weird gray area and it's sort of like a cat and mouse game where um, these laws will be in place about what you can and can't do as an unlicensed uh, lawyer, or I, I guess you're not an unlicensed lawyer, okay. you're a, whatever, a non-lawyer, a layman, yeah, um, and yeah, and they'll, the, these companies will kind of find the loopholes, and because there's no uniform law across, you know, nationally, it's all sort of statewide, they can kind of find ways to make these uh, niche businesses that sort of operate in the gray area of the law. Um, this case, the movie, is pretty black and white. I mean, the guy's in there doing a trial. I don't think anywhere would, yeah. um, you know, <laughs> not consider that practice of law. But I, so, I was sort of curious about the rest of it. What about uh, situations like in the beginning of the movie when, when Charlie is giving his assistant really specific instructions, but then she's the one who would actually make the calls and do these things. Is that allowed because basically because she works for him and is in this instance an, ex an extension and acting on his behalf? So Mardo depositions have been moved to Thursday. Good. Banks that needs you to file the discovery briefs on Hemmelstein. Fine. And your fiance wants to know if you signed off on the newest draft of the vows. Yes. No, buy out whatever she wants. Oh, great. Uh, you got the continuance in Petrumco Oil. Mark says we'll have to redraft the Olson petition for jurisdictional issues and the caterers suggest adding a seafood station to the buffet. What kind of seafood? Shellfish, I believe. 
they could circulate more canapes. No, no, it's, it's, it's fine. Tell David it's only a reply brief, have Pickering handle the Tramco deposition, and uh, find that Oklahoma president in Hamilton. Right. Yeah. Oh, and call that furniture guy and tell him my desktop is supposed to be in Burl, not Onyx. Burl. Antique Burl with a satin finish. Got it. So I, I, like I mentioned earlier, I went through and listened to that rattling off thing a few times and try to mix and match his responses. And so I can tell you right now, the first thing she tells him is that a deposition was moved. So that is just like a scheduling thing. She's basically saying this deposition that we have is moved to someday and that's fine. The next thing she says is that banks had needs discovery briefs in and then names a case. Um, the phrase discovery briefs is not something that I'm familiar with. I know what discovery is and I know what briefs are, but put together, it's not used that way here. <laughs> I looked at that too. I wanted to see if that was just a, cause you know, different things are called different things across in different places. Yeah. And I know this was set in California. So I looked it up and I did see one, only one place that it was used that way. So I'm a little bit suspicious that this is just a word salad. Word salad. It doesn't yeah. actually. <laughs> mean anything yep um but you know needing to deal with a discovery issue or file some sort of motion about discovery would be reasonable but in response to that he uh he tells her to ask some other lawyer to do it oh, then she mentions gotcha. that there is a continuance issued in a case and that's just for those who don't know continuance is sort of like you just reschedule basically uh, and his response to her is to have a different attorney handle it. So that seems kosher as well. Gotcha. And then the last one, she says, Mark says, redraft the Olson petition for jurisdictional issues. And his response is, tell David it's only a reply brief. I'm assuming they're matched up together and this was maybe just like an ad lib or something. And that's why the names don't match up. <laughs> but um, it, those two things don't really connect. Um a jurisdictional issue would be something that you could address. And if you had it come up, you would want to correct that because um, jurisdiction means like the court's ability to hear a case. And so yeah. that should, if it's an issue, it would always need to be kind of front and center. <clears throat> and then him saying, tell David it's only a reply brief would not really connect because a reply brief, as the name implies, is a reply to something. Uh, so I, I guess you could reply to something addressing jurisdictional issues. I'm not sure They're, the names don't match up. So that was kind of, I think, I just kind of get the sense that they picked a lot of legal words and then just were kind of like bouncing back off one another. Played and Mad Libs with not, them. <laughs> right, sort of, yeah. I mean, like, they're stuff that sort of makes sense, but maybe not all lumped together in the way that they were used. Gotcha. Okay. And I was going to say... um Oh, did you catch the part where uh, when Daniels is freaking out about what's happened or when Charlie's freaking out about what's happened that he says and he like rattles off, that's that's a felony, Richard. No, wait, that's yes. Yeah. And he like starts to count on his fingers. And he's like, that's <laughs> yeah, like seven yeah. felonies or something like that. Did you did you look into any of that or like try to verify what he's I, saying? A little bit. And um, I was reading I was reading a. I can't remember what the, the generic term for this is, but it's basically like a, a journal, a collection of, of, of cases. And it, it was a, a, a survey of all 50 states. And, um, generally speaking, a legal, like a legal penalty is not, a criminal penalty is not the first 
order of business for unlicensed practice of law. Mm. Typically, they'll file like injunctions and things like that. So I think technically he's probably right. Uh, I uh, later in the movie they talk about like fraud and things like that, which make more sense. Yeah, um, you know he's like pretending to be X, Y, and Z. I don't know what the penalties for just like garden variety unlicensed practice of law are, but I get the sense that, well, in this case, you know, they hold a whole trial and everything. It probably would be a big, bigger deal, but maybe just that first initial appearance where he was going to ask for a continuance and then flubbed it. Maybe if it was just that in isolation, it wouldn't have been, you know, I don't, I don't think they were going to be locked up in the Keith runaway or anything. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. But I guess that is one of the things that in that first sort of crash course that I was reading through, because it's so different in place to place, I think the penalties and enforcement is also very different. And actually, that's specifically one of the things I read is that regardless of the penalties, the way it is enforced and how fervently it's enforced is very different. So I think it's probably going to be dependent on where you live. In a place like California... I get the impression that it would not be maybe uh, policed so heavily because they have a lot of kind of wild stuff that goes on in California. <laughs> yeah, it's a big place, lots of stuff going on. Um, right. And of course, Nevada is still the Wild West. So uh, right. you mentioned in My Cousin Vinny that there are some places like in New York and Connecticut that even though a lawyer is technically – licensed in New York, he might be able to practice law in Connecticut because of some some rule, some term that you mentioned. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, uh, reciprocity is the, reciprocity. Is the, the term. So yeah. I wonder if um if there's, you know, it, it, there is that reciprocity between California and Nevada or, or maybe because this is such a big firm, I don't know, and it's private, maybe, maybe they have like I don't know, deals in different states where different lawyers can go to different places or like they have things in place where they can file to... Uh, well, they actually answer this question in oh. the movie. Okay, and go this ahead. this is, uh, well, you know, this is technically part of the defense because I thought they did a very good job with it. But okay. since we're talking about it, I'll just mention it now. Yeah. Um, if you recall back in when we were talking about My Cousin Vinny and we were talking about the reciprocity and we were saying how he's this New York lawyer who's appearing in... Was it Alabama that the, the mm-hmm. my cousin Vinny said in, but some other state? Yeah, and Alabama. I was blanking on the I was blanking on the Latin term for it. But when you have a one-off appearance in a state that you're not licensed in, and you file a motion, and it's called pro hoc vice, and in trial and error, it specifically comes up, and they, uh, I can't. Let me see if I have it on my specifically in my notes, but. All I have is that they talk about Pro Hoc Vici. I think, <laughs> I think, um, at this point, Richard has already f- fully assumed the role of Charlie, of, uh, yeah. of Charlie, and so he asks him if he had filed or he, you know, I saw your Pro Hoc Vici motion or something like that. And they even ask to see his bar card when Charlie is trying to 
uh, like Charlie say is that pretending he's to be Richard and saying he's another lawyer right. assistant. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And he's like, yeah, and he's like, okay, let's just see your bar card. So both of those things they did. They, actually, I thought it was pretty good. They yeah. they he, they mentioned that he had filed this pro hoc vice motion to appear for this one-off thing in a different state, and they kind of implied that it had been resolved and accepted. And then he tried to do like a similar motion, and the very first hurdle was, let me see your bar card, and he was like, oh, uh, I don't have one, basically. So that all got passing marks from me. And I also thought it was kind of amusing because it came up with my cousin Vinny, and that was one of the things that I thought they didn't do particularly well. We have uh, um, once again rambled through and kind of spoiled a little bit of stuff because I keep asking questions. <laughs> I do want to ask one more question, and I feel like this uh-huh. would probably come up eventually in some other movie that we watch. But uh, since we're talking about the practice of law, how how does it come into play when somebody decides to represent themselves? That they don't want counsel. Uh, wanna, how does it come into play? You mean like why like, do they like, decide to do why that? Why is that allowed? <laughs> oh well, why is it's allowed is probably a very long, you know, philosophical question about your rights, your constitutional rights, and things like that. Yeah, um, it's it is more in the criminal context. It gets a little bit more murky because um, there are certain hearings that they need that they will have for when someone wants to represent themselves. Mm. A lot of times if it's in like, I think in the middle of a case, you will frequently have somebody trying to sort of derail the trial, want to represent themselves and they need to have like a hearing. And there are things like where the council is held as a standby council to sort of still stay on in case they need to fill in and things like that. Gotcha. But as for why someone wants to represent themselves either they have some sort of you know mental problem where they're not maybe just like they're just not able to like really appreciate everything and appreciate that their attorney is probably in a better position to do it than them Mm -hmm. or they're just um delusional (laughs) and think that they can (laughs) outsmart or or you know talk their way out of whatever punishment or sweet talk to jury or something like that so there are but but there are methods in place basically for if somebody did for some reason want to represent themselves they can do so without violating the uh you know unlicensed practice of law sort of rules that are in place right yeah yeah oh i see what you're saying so yeah um uh, i i don't know what the i'm assuming the interplay is just that you have the because you have the right to right represent yourself it's not considered unlicensed practice of law there's a carve gotcha. out for that specific now you can't uh you can't represent somebody else uh <coughs> right if, if you're a non-lawyer and um, actually people will try and do that somewhat frequently in in uh, prison you'll see someone who you know is like the jailhouse lawyer where they just have you know that they're much more well-versed in the law than other inmates and mm-hmm. so they might help somebody else file their paperwork and i think that generally get like nobody kicks up much of much of a fuss but i have seen people try to sign these petitions for another person kind of as though they were a lawyer and that has created some problems in the past because you're not a lawyer you can't sign it for can't can't be submitting someone else's homework Okay, well that was my that was my last question <laughs> during our, our our debrief, I guess, or our hearing. Uh, <laughs> so now let's uh, 
Go ahead and um, looks like the the honorable Judge Paul Graff is uh, waving his gavel, getting our attention. So let's uh, let's get into our prosecution. Right. Uh, okay. So um, we talked a little bit about. You had mentioned that they were uh, talking about you know the four felonies, and he was listing all the the bad things that happened from Mm -hmm. him pretending to be an attorney. I noticed that one of the things that they did not mention was just saying unauthorized practice of law. He mentioned conspiracy and fraud and like a couple other things like that, but he never actually just said, you know, you can't practice law without a license. And, um, I, I mean like they seems like they have a lot of attention to those kind of details throughout the rest of the movie. So I was a little bit like, Oh, well, <laughs> kind of missed that one, but, you know, okay. Um, and let me just also say that I was uh, pleasantly surprised by this movie. I did not have that many things to uh, really, like, pick at from the prosecution side. Um, There's a lot of things that were kind of over the top and outrageous that were obviously done for comedy and things like that. But mm-hmm. as far as the just, like, legal stuff... They did a lot better than I was expecting. Nobody in a real courtroom falls for that kind of melodramatic garbage. Hey, man, nice work in there. Okay. There's one thing that right at the beginning of the case that I have no idea why they would do this. They had their opening statements and um, they have the case and they let the state do their opening statement and then they just stop the case and they're like, all right, we'll come back tomorrow and do the rest of the opening statement. I'm not sure why they would do that. Like, because they had done their little request for continuance and it was denied. So they start, they come in first thing in the morning, they go in there at, you know, whatever, 9 a.m. They take a five minute opening statement and they just dust their hands and like, all right, we'll come back tomorrow. Uh, I mean, it, it had to work for the purpose of the movie because they needed the rest of the day to, you know, do their montage of things that they had to do. But mm. um, that didn't strike me as particularly realistic. <laughs> there was... There's another point a little bit later where the cross-examination of a witness wasn't doing too good. There was a lot of questions like, what was your impression of X, Y, and Z? And things like that that um, asked the, the witness to, to respond in a bad way. Um, and uh, <laughs> another thing that some of the miscellaneous things that kind of they're the things that are not over the top and ridiculous, but are are still wrong, kind of jump out to me maybe more. I don't pose. I don't preen. I don't put perjured testimony on the stand. I don't make a mockery of the American legal system. Well, you got your style. I got mine. When they later in the movie need to, uh, Charlie has been evicted from the courthouse because he is not a, a lawyer and he pretends to be his assistant's assistant at first, but um, he continues to be disruptive. So the judge throws him out, which Mm. I actually thought was fine. But they keep trying to find ways of uh, allowing Charlie to continue to communicate with Richard so he can guide him through the process. (laughs) And at at one point, Richard just walks over to the windows in the courthouse and opens them up. And you can't just go over to the courthouse windows and open them. I mean, probably in most courthouses, the windows don't even open. (laughs) But that is like all in the judge's domain. Um, there's, uh, there's another legal podcast that I listen to occasionally called for the defense and it, um, 
it's a, a series of interviews with uh, defense attorneys who have worked on like really big or, or notorious cases. And one uh, woman who was the defense attorney, I believe for Harvey Weinstein, she told a story about how it was like extremely cold in this courthouse and the judge had the windows open and I can't remember the exact temperature, but you know, like, like unreasonably cold, like 50 degrees or something like that. And she asked if she could close the windows and I guess the judge didn't um, like her very much. And so he was just like, no windows stay open. So yeah, can't be touching, can't even touch the window without asking Hmm. the judge first. I just go traipsing about and then with the horn honking and all that. So. Yeah, yeah. What's what's happening in this scene is that uh, <laughs> um, Charlie is down in his car on basically almost on the courthouse lawn, and he is honking his horn in Morse code to. Uh, he's on a walkie-talkie with Richard, and he's honking his his horn in Morse code to tell Richard what kind of objection to make at any given point. Their strategy basically seems to be Richard will say as little as possible except for whatever Charlie has prepared for him, and whenever he needs to object to something the prosecutor is saying, Richard will tell him how to object. <laughs> and uh, that's what's going on. It, it Right after he's evicted from the courthouse, when he's still desperately trying to maintain some kind of control, he actually breaks back in and is climbing through the <laughs> air ducts and like trying to whisper to Richard what to say. And then he falls into the courthouse. Now, this is your domain, counselor, but legally speaking, he totally would have been arrested, right? <laughs> for, for For breaking into the courthouse and like breaking through the – I mean – uh, you know, so they – at least they know who this person is and they know he's this assistant. But he was told to leave mm-hmm. and he broke back in and then broke through the the ceiling. So, it's like, yeah, destruction um, of property. <laughs> you, can, you can see the construction. I can't imagine that like it would markers go for the rest of the well. <laughs> yeah. Right, exactly. Yeah, and they just – I thought it was so f- funny that um, – the judge, oh, I can't remember what his, his name is, Judge... Uh, judge Paul Graf. Yeah. Judge Paul Graf. Graf, um, yeah. Oh, you know what? I just realized his his name is Paul Z. Graf, which is Paul's Graf. That's a famous case, Paul's Graf. Huh. So I believe that that's a pun. That's funny. Yeah. Um, sorry, derailed me there, but uh, uh, Judge Paul's Graf just says, uh, you know, like, nope. Don't we're not stopping. Just clean it up. We're gonna keep going, and um, you know, judges get to run the courtroom. Uh, you know, they have a lot of discretion, so pro- probably they wouldn't if somebody broke through the ceiling and crashed <laughs> through a table. But uh, I guess <laughs> maybe technically it's possible. Well, um, before uh, I get to my prosecution, any anything else that you feel like is uh, really noteworthy on your end? Uh, let's see. Let me see for any other things. I'm checking my notes here. Uh, there's one other thing that towards the end, the prosecutor, it starts to look like the defense is starting to win the sympathies of the jury and they might take the case. And the prosecutor is getting more and more upset by this and starts to just like come unglued. And there's one scene where the prosecutor just like totally loses it. And, um, it's a penny 
It's also an engraving. Order. Well, here's an engraving. You give me $17.99. Come on, give it to me. Miss Gardner. Yes, here's another. Here's six, seven, eight engravings times $17.99. What is that? $143.92. You give me $143.92. Miss Gardner, control yourself. Me. Me. Quiet. Uh, I think she even says something like, you probably don't believe that, do you? For for testimony and things mm-hmm. like that, and um, it was you know it it's for comedic and even dramatic effect, but definitely not something that would fly. Uh, the, like he's like screaming and stuff like that, and just totally going bonkers. Um, <clears throat> that probably would not happen in yeah. a trial. So basically, what's going on is. Um, Rip Torn's character, Benny Gibbs, is uh, is a con artist. Uh, this is the guy who is the cousin-in-law of Charlie's boss back at the big law firm. And Benny Gibbs is on trial because he was selling engravings of President Lincoln to uh, the downtrodden usually senior citizens, people that he could uh, sort of finagle into his little scheme. And he was charging them something like $17.89, something like that, for these engravings of President Lincoln. And when he would get paid, he would send to these these customers of his a penny, <laughs> a single <laughs> penny. <laughs> Which is, as he says at one point, also an engraving. <laughs> and so that, he's on trial for fraud uh, because he, um, he he weaseled these people out of their money. And uh, th- that's that's kind of what's going on. So that's the man that, that Charlie has been asked to come down here and at first ask for a continuance for, but then the man that Richard ends up having to defend. And <clears throat> my feelings about this movie are kind of mixed up, so it's going to be a little bit hard to – I guess, parse out what I want to prosecute and what I want to defend. I guess from a prosecutorial standpoint, one thing I will say is there are no surprises in this movie at all. Uh, <laughs> it's not really the kind of movie you come into looking for uh, intrigue or suspense. You, you kind of know what you're getting into, but it's it's very, very predictable, kind of paint-by-numbers, um, 90s comedy. Uh not as problematic as I was afraid it might be. Uh, there were a couple of things, though, that I, I didn't really like. Richard is is kind of a sleazeball, uh, especially at the beginning. Is it too soon to kiss the bride? Yeah, I, I, we should wait. I have a big office, I have a big car, and a big... Uh, I'm big. He hits on this, this – he comes on this woman in, in the bar pretty hard, uh, a woman who then, of course, turns out to be the prosecuting attorney, uh, Elizabeth. Uh, but I did I did like at one point he, – he's trying to like sweet talk her like, can't we get past this whole – you know, this whole law thing? And he's got his hand on her shoulder and she's just like – you're touching me. And so I, I am glad that she, she stood up for herself in that instance. Um, she, she's an impressive, uh, impressive lady in the movie for sure. Um, other than that though, there wasn't really much that, that I found to be, um, to have aged poorly in that regard, uh, social norms or anything like that. Um, I, I think for the most parts, the, the actors played their parts. Well, uh, Daniel's, 
and Rip Torn are the best parts of this movie to me. Um, I'll talk a little more about that in the defense. But uh, I thought that um, Michael Richards played played his part well. Uh, he was playing to type, I think. And uh, Richard does have sort of an arc in the movie. Uh, it's a little bit inconsistent, I feel like. And I think that he makes some some character jumps that are are not necessarily super reasonable. Uh, I feel like it could have been fleshed out a little bit more in a different kind of movie, and it might have been a little heavy-handed for uh, for the creators to try to make it work in this this comedy. But I, they had to do something, I guess, with this character. Uh, and, and I think in the end, I think it's satisfying for the kind of movie that it's in. So, not a huge gripe there. I will say that the character of Judge Graff is incredibly inconsistent. I could not pin this guy down <laughs> at all. Uh, he's funny, which you know he's supposed to be, and, and Austin Pendleton, um, again playing playing to type. He, this judge, you don't know if he's really sharp. You don't know if he's kind of a buffoon. You don't know if he's super impatient and just really wants to get this case over with, or if he's just kind of you know there. He's got to be there anyway, so he's just going to get through it. He goes back and forth a lot in that regard, which was a little bit distracting, but again, not not anything not anything terrible, not anything that I would uh, I, I would say I dislike the movie over or anything like that. So, I will say the character of Tiffany, the uh, the fiance, is irredeemably unlikable. Uh, I just <laughs> uh, and and you're not really supposed to like her, but there is literally no right. nuance at all. I to the point where it was unpleasant whenever she was on screen, and I just wanted her to go away. <laughs> she has go away heat, to borrow a wrestling term. <laughs> and I guess from a writing standpoint. The waitress at the bar who makes the uh, the drink that really gets Charlie going is um, a lady named Billy Tyler. Uh, she is played by Charlize Theron, and you find out more about her later in the movie. But she is definitely what you call a Mary Sue in creative terms. Uh, she's kind of like the perfect character who doesn't do anything wrong um, and – basically comes in and makes the protagonist or one of the protagonists realize uh, all the things that are really important in life. And then of course ends up with him. Um, so little bits, a uh, little bit lazy writing, I guess she could have been a little bit more flawed. And I think they try to add some nuance to her later on, but it just makes her seem, it just makes her more, uh, it kind of just, just puts you more in her corner. <laughs> and uh, mm -hmm. so, again, all of these are pretty minor gripes. I actually ended up – I didn't have much of a problem with the movie at all. Um, so, um, yeah, I guess did you have anything else on, on the prosecution side? Um, no, I mean I realize – that I have started to just like list rattle off a list of gripes and probably, <laughs> probably not the best way to organize these things for me going forward. But um, yeah, I mean, I, I will say, I think I kind of cover this, but really I was, I was expecting there to be more outlandish craziness that just had no basis in the law, but they worked in so many pretty accurate things. And like, even the thing that we just, discovered that the judge's name is a reference to a law case that probably very few people got maybe even maybe even if you're a lawyer you may not have 
necessarily saw the judge's whole name to connect those dots. So I think that maybe hints that the they, people who made this kind of knew what they were doing a little bit. Yeah, or they had somebody come in and or you know, maybe someone who's obviously the guy, the director worked on another law movie. Maybe there's some people who are involved with the case. I, I don't know yeah. who wrote it, but maybe they're um, you know, maybe they're were new lawyers or had someone advise or whatever. But yeah, I think the for the prosecution there were a few things that were wrong, but um, most of them were not egregious and um, irredeemable. It was more just like, yeah. oh, that's not, not really how it would work or whatever. Okay. Well, all right. So are we ready to, uh, to move on to the defense? I believe so. All right. Your Honor, no further questions. Okay, so... Do you want to go? For, no. Okay. Um, I mentioned a couple of things already as we've been working through it, like the Pro Hoc Vice and um, uh, things like that. But um, I thought that right from the beginning of the actual law stuff, the state's opening argument was pretty good. Um, they talk about like, the evidence will show X, Y, and Z. And that is basically how you are how are you supposed to to conduct your opening how to how to write them again i'm not a trial lawyer but the idea is that um you can say that the evidence will show because nothing has come into evidence yet you're you're anticipating that your witnesses will say x y and z or that you will have some document that does whatever but you can't just say this guy is guilty because this because you don't know what the Witnesses were say you don't know if the evidence will be kept out, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So that was like just because the, the the argument itself I thought was fine and things like that made made me feel like they were appreciating the nuance, some more nuanced things uh, about the law. Like by contrast, Aaron Sorkin in um, A Few Good Men had just a collection of just like horribly, terribly worded cross-examination questions and things like that, which kind of boils down to just like the very simple word choice for how he was asking these questions. They're kind of long and rambling and require a stacking of inferences. So something like this, that's just like a very minor thing, but it was done correctly, I can really appreciate. So I thought that scored big points for the defense. I was impressed with the the prosecutor uh, in in this, she um, she starts out as kind of an ice queen sort of character, but right. mm-hmm. then you realize that what what she, she's really doing it because she cares about the people that that were, were right. ripped off by this guy, and um, yeah. so yeah, I thought she was very level headed un- until there at the end, <laughs> very level headed, very <laughs> um, uh, very professional, and just really really thorough and knew how to do her job. I got that impression yeah. for sure. Uh- at one point, they're discussing a, a possibility of a plea bargain, and um, Charlie is in the background trying to signal to Richard about what he should offer because the, the prosecutor wouldn't talk to the assistant. She only wants to talk to the attorney, which mm-hmm. is reasonable. And um, he holds up a certain number, I think six fingers, trying to get him to say six months was his offer but uh richard thought it meant six years so he said what would you think about six years and the prosecutor says something like well the maximum is three years so i don't think i'll accept your offer or something you know, like she <laughs> declined a, a, a you know she, she could tell that his offer was not um 
appropriate and didn't take advantage of the defense, even though mm. she clearly did not uh, like like the guy. So they had some. I mean, aside from just like whatever legal consequences there might be from trying to have a plea that is more than the maximum, <laughs> which probably wouldn't hold up. But uh, I think they did it more for character, like to show that she's a a, a good a good person or yeah. or whatever. Um, another reference to law, which is more overt, was when Michael, I mean, uh, when Charlie and Richard are like brainstorming, trying to come up with a defense for this guy who's kind of a, a sleaze bag and mm-hmm. really doesn't have much of a defense. <laughs> and um, Richard suggests the Twinkie defense, which I don't know if people realize, but that's actually a real defense. That was actually used in a pretty famous case. And I also thought it was kind of funny that not only that Richard suggested the Twinkie defense, but he was the one who went to the legal book and found it and showed it to uh, to Charlie. Which, the fact that he knew what the Twinkie defense was, I thought was funny. But I, there's no way that someone who has no training in law could just pluck a law book off the wall and then by the citation find whatever case the Twinkie defense was. So it was kind of a hybrid, but I did like that they worked that in because that's uh was a real I think I mean and it's basically the defense that they use is to like the the sugar in the Twinkies reacted and made the guy do whatever bad thing. That's our defense. A Twinkie? So that that's a real thing? Like the Twinkie yeah. defense? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wow, that's crazy. Yeah. <laughs> Let me see if I can... Hold on real quick since we're doing this. Let me just see if I can tell you what the case is because I might have it here. Get some, get some live research going here. As I thought I wrote it down. I think... Was it the guy who assassinated um, Harvey Milk? Right? I don't know. Yeah. It's I, I won't I won't I won't waste my but it, I maybe I can look it up for the next time but yeah look look it up yourselves the Twinkie defense <laughs> is a real thing go out and do your own darn legal research I don't I don't get paid by you lot by you folk <laughs> yep not yet I don't think we're regular enough to have a Patreon <laughs> yet so <laughs> um uh the next thing is so I as you can tell that I started to pick up on the very weird and niche things that they did kind of correctly there's a scene where billy the waitress is exemplifying her freewheeling spirits and she drives a car barefoot and um charlie is like shocked by this and i got the impression that he was shocked not only because you know her freewheeling attitude but also because he was scandalized that she would do something like that but i just wanted to mention that driving without shoes is not illegal uh, I mean, it may be, I don't think that, I don't think any state has that, has it illegal. I don't know the rules, the laws in every state, but I'm pretty sure that there is not a penalty for driving without shoes. Yeah, so, I uh, I think I was told at one point here in um, in Texas that it was, uh, that it, that you could get a ticket for driving without shoes on, but I, I never looked into it I at all to back it up. I think it's just a common misconception that people yeah. think. Yeah, that people think it's illegal. And I don't believe that it there that it's a punishable offense any anywhere. Yeah. I mean, you know, don't take this as legal advice. I don't know, but I'm pretty sure. It's <laughs> Consult yeah. a lawyer. Yeah, or at least Google uh, it. You know, <laughs> yeah. At the very least, Google it. <laughs> Let's see. I was some other things that I liked when they're trying. 
back to when they're trying to figure out their defense, they decide that they need to get a medical expert to support their Twinkie defense theory. And <laughs> um, uh, Richard is is shocked. He's like, well, how are you going to get a doctor to agree with us? And uh, Charlie kind of says sort of just like under his breath, he's like, if they if they pay uh, enough, they'll agree with anything. If we pay them enough, they'll agree with anything. And uh, yeah, that's kind of kind of how it works. I mean, <laughs> um, every case that has the expert has an expert on both sides. So yeah, that's that's the thing about data. It's improbable data just, that data just sit yeah. there and are, but an expert can um, can manipulate your view of the data to lead you to a certain conclusion and if they do it deftly enough then yeah yeah i uh i mean he's uh, what he's saying is not incorrect i mean i think <coughs> i picked it out as something that he said that was good and and right and kind of amusing in an amusing way but boy is that annoying i even had during a presentation recently a judge someone commented it was in a continuing education class i was in mm-hmm. and someone was there was they were talking about grammar or like two spaces after a period something like that something very like boring and dry and someone volunteered and said i i believe there was a study that said this was easier to read for whatever and then the judge was just like yeah but i can find a study that says the opposite <laughs> i was like oh, don't to, to be so dismissive to use that as a way to be so dismissive really really burned my britches <laughs> I, I did not appreciate that at all <laughs> um anyway back to the back to the movie um there's a point towards the end of the movie where richard wants to have the defendant testify and um charlie won't do it because he knows that the guy's a scumbag and he's going to lie and he will not allow someone he won't put perjured testimony on on the stand i think is how he phrases it oh yeah i've Basically, got, I've got a funny lie because he related to that yeah <laughs> yeah so he won't let him he won't let him go on the stand and lie because he knows he's going to lie and that is that is the ethic legally ethical correct thing to do you can't you can't put a witness on that you know is going to lie now ultimately <laughs> ultimately richard does it because either he doesn't I, I can't remember what his justification if he just didn't care or whatever. I but, think that um, Gibbs just convinces him. He's like, you know, if if I'm going to hang, at least give me a chance to defend myself. And so Richard's like, uh-huh. all right, go knock yourself out. <laughs> yeah. But uh, Charlie's instinct was was correct, and you know, you can't you can't call a witness you know is going to lie. And I think if you know your witness is intending, it wants to be called and, and is intending to lie. I think your obligation is to try to dissuade them from testifying at all. I believe is like sort of the standard uh, response to that. Um, the last thing that I wanted to highlight is I really, um, I really enjoyed that they worked in the, what, what is considered the ultimate lawyer answer. Someone asks someone a question and he gives the answer. It depends. <laughs> and you, you learn that that's the standard lawyer answer to every question is it depends. And, um, <laughs> I think that this is another one of those times where the writers of the movie were intentionally trying. Like, I don't think this was coincidence. I think they were really trying to work in all of these things and, um, into the movie. So yeah, that was good. 
And okay. that's uh, that's it for my defense for the most part. I like I said, I was surprised at how well they did. I thought it was going to be a completely over the top. Don't kind of pay any mind to trying to get it right. And instead, I thought they did a, a surprising number of things that were very like honest and seemed like pretty legitimately correct. Right. So um, I mentioned earlier that I was a little bit disappointed when I came back. I had some, I had some nostalgia for this movie, but. Because of my experience going back and watching some other movies that I used to watch with my dad and being let down, I went into it with, I guess, some tempered expectations and um, not expecting it to necessarily be as great as I I, um, thought I remembered. Um, But I was still looking forward to seeing it. And in the end, I was not disappointed. I noticed some things. uh, I thought that... There were some things that didn't make sense to me from a story standpoint. I guess I don't really understand why at this point with all of his success and everything, why Charlie would still be in touch with Richard. I feel like there are – I have several friends that we actually stayed in um, fairly similar places as far as our like success with career and things like that, and yet we still – drifted apart uh maybe it's because they're both still in california and so it's just proximity you know they meet up once in a while and so they stayed in touch but they're just so very very different people that it seems like as adults they would have just kind of naturally grown apart um the uh the idea that richard is even able like at all to pull this off is uh, kind of um you really need to suspend your disbelief because it, it, it shows him from the beginning, like I said, that he's supposed to be a screw up. He's a, a failed actor. He um, consistently makes bad choice after bad choice. The first, uh, the first, I guess, uh, he's trying to throw a bachelor party for his friends. That's not too bad. But the first really, like, I guess, quote unquote, noble thing he tries to do is help his friend not look like a fool by impersonating him in front of a judge. <laughs> but then that's still, again, he's not thinking it through and that ends up setting up the whole problem for the whole movie. You do see him start to kind of grow as a person. And by the end, he, uh, um, he actually uses his closing argument to basically say, you know what? You all, saw this guy, you heard this guy, you know what he did, just make your decision. He doesn't really offer much of a defense at all at the end. Mm-hmm. Um, I did want to ask about that. Is Have you ever heard of anything like that before? That At the end, the, the, the defense attorney basically just like, yeah, come on, really, come on, people. So, you know? I, I thought that actually the language that they used in his closing – was pretty clever because I think, and granted, I don't remember the specific words used anymore, but I think a lot of the the things that he says, especially if you were like reading it on a sheet of paper, you could interpret it to be a sincere defense for this person, oh, okay. depending on like the tone you put into it. And I think that that was what he was going for, was this ambiguous closing argument where you kind of draw your conclusion about his character and that maybe he feels like, this guy t- deserves to go to jail, so he doesn't want to help him get off. And so he kind of maybe emphasizes it slightly differently, but in the words that he uses, I think, are more uh, susceptible of different 
okay. interpretations in his closing. Gotcha. Also, one other thing that I wanted to say is one of the sort of final straws in the movie is they end up getting a plea agreement for the defendant and the prosecutor reluctantly offers this plea because I guess she saw how the jury was eating up his testimony and realized that she was probably going to lose the case. And when it was presented to the defendant, he's like, I'm going to take my chances. I'm winning this case. And so at that point, I think both for Richard and for the prosecutor, they're just like, screw this guy. And that's what made him decide to do his his sort of his uh, throw in the towel uh, performance. Uh, I mean, if, if this was a real case and your attorney tried to sink you in their closing, that would be... Uh, you'd get a new a new trial probably and a new attorney. I would expect. Mm. Um, yeah, I thought that. Uh, I guess. So another another really great thing about the movie. One thing I liked a lot the um, the chemistry between uh, Daniels and Richards uh, between Charlie and, R- and Richard is, is really impressive. Like they play off of each other really well, uh, despite being so different. Um, these are two guys who at the time were, um, they were on top of their game. Um, Richards was uh, really, really famous for again, Kramer on Seinfeld. Uh, Jeff Daniels was kind of getting a resurgence in his career coming off of dumb and dumber. And, um, Daniels, he, he, he can, he never, he never disappoints. His, his acting in this movie is just superb. It's the best in the whole movie. <laughs> the, his facial expressions, his body language, his tone of voice in every single instant, you, you believe he is going through, like Charlie is going through like it's like he he's this real man in the midst of all of these absurd things around him and he is reacting the way that a normal person would and it's hilarious to behold um he's just he he was my favorite part of this movie um rip torn is like the classic character actor he knows how to deliver a line he knows how to spin a yarn um he played lbj in not one but two movies and lbj also had that real kind of colloquial down home way of getting you to listen to his story and really empathize with him and and man when <laughs> when rip torn tells his story um <laughs> I actually have a soundbite of that too. I think I'm going to go ahead and play it in its entirety because I wasn't able to find a whole bunch of soundbites for this movie, but this is worth listening to. Um, at, at the end of the trial, when he's trying to offer his defense uh, of, of his own actions and tell the story about how he, he got addicted to the sugar that, that made him go crazy, um, this is the story that he tells. Do you solemnly swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth to help you, God? How can you even ask me that? Mr. Gibbs. I do. Mr. Gibbs, uh, can you think of anything that might have contributed to your current condition? Condition? Your chemical dependency. No, I can't. You can't? (laughs) Well, uh, there was a party one year out by the lake. is that what you mean? Yes, yes, that's it. Um, tell us about the party by the lake. I was six years old. It was October 31st. I was hungry. 
I didn't come from a wealthy family, if you know what I mean. So October 31st, oh, Halloween. Yes, yes, Halloween, where you had your first sweets, where you had your first encounter with the sugar that would eventually enslave you. Bleeding. <laughs> Sustained. Uh, Mr. Gibbs, tell us about that first Halloween. I was with my girlfriend, Nancy Newcomb. She was seven, and I was holding Mama's old pillowcase full of candy. I remember I was holding it when the pier collapsed, but I can't remember what happened to it afterwards. That's funny. The pier? The... Yeah, that's where the party was. Lake Michigan froze over that year, bone-chilling cold. That's why, folks, our town isn't just a desert truck stop to me. It's the warm home I've always dreamed of. Objection! What is the relevance of this line of questioning? Uh, if you'll allow me some leeway, Your Honor, I'm sure it'll be clear very soon. I can hardly wait. <laughs> yes. Uh, now, uh, you were saying? About the party. Oh, yes, for all us kids at the orphanage. The orphanage? Our Lady of Detroit. The sisters gave a Halloween party out on the pier every year. I came dressed as a great pumpkin, but everybody called me Little Pumpkin. But it was so cold that particular year that one of the big boys, Eddie Rollins and his pals, they built a fire, which got away from them, I guess, because that's when the pier caught fire and collapsed. We fell right through the ice into that freezing water. I helped the little kids struggle out, but those poor, cold little bunnies and angels. Ah, it was a howling wind. Your Honor. Let him finish. Nancy ran up and gave me a hug and a kiss. She says, you're my hero, Ben Gibbs. You saved the little ones. But that made Eddie Rollins mad. He said, hero, Hank, he's the one that started the fire. Then all his pals join in. The pumpkin did it, little pumpkin. And then all the other kids turned on me. Somebody grabbed a handful of mud and said, hey, pumpkin boy, boom. By the time the sisters got there, I, I had mud up my nose, in my mouth, in my eyes. I couldn't see. I was on my knees. I was crying so hard. I, I, I just couldn't explain the truth. It's, that's when they threw me out, right then and there. They threw you out of an orphanage. Well, by the time I got back, they had shut the gates, locked them, chains and padlocks. There I was, my poor little hands freezing to those metal gates, my pumpkin suit whipping in the wind. I, Let me in, please. But that's when I, I caught a glimpse in the second story window, a glimpse of my only friend in the world, Nancy Newcomb. She was clean now, warm and dry. She was talking to a kind-looking man and woman. She was being adopted. I was so happy for her, because she was truly good. She said, bye, Benny. You're my hero. I'll always remember you. Look in our hiding place. I left something for you. Bye-bye. I never saw Nancy again, but in our secret hiding place. I found it. And she wrong. She knew it was my favorite. I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm 
<laughs> and I mean, and just <laughs> that's oh, uh, like he wins over everybody in the courtroom except the prosecuting attorney, even the judge. You're just like, let him finish, <laughs> and he's like handing him a box of tissues <laughs> and stuff like that. And um, then, of course, you know, after after it's all said and done, uh, the judge just totally dismisses this guy, and he's like, all right, great, <laughs> you know, case case dismissed or whatever. Yeah, so I, I don't I don't know. Um, uh, not case dismissed because there is a finding of guilt, <laughs> but mm-hmm. uh, you know what I mean. Um, right. I I guess I just I enjoyed it. You know, I would go back and watch it again. Um, and the I also thought I thought the chemistry between Daniels and um, Charlie Theron was was nice. I feel like I felt like there was a bit of an age gap there that was. A little bit off-putting. I don't think it was enough to really distract me too much, but um, mm-hmm. she seemed a lot younger than him. I don't know how much younger she actually is, but uh, this was um, – you can tell. Like, this is baby Charlize. Like, she's so young in this movie. Um, yeah. I thought that the relationship that happens – again, spoiler alert – between the prosecutor, Elizabeth, and Richard is – just completely bananas like that would never ever happen but you also like the idea of these two like opposites attracting type thing um and sort of showing the growth of his character and that she notices that i guess she's kind of a foil for him that you can like measure his development against so uh yeah 21 year age difference i just looked up 21 year age difference okay yeah Mm -hmm. yeah so uh, (laughs) um but I mean, in real life, the characters are probably not characters. They were probably cast to be different, yeah, but uh, not, not that far apart. But twenty-one years, man. Um, so Charlize Theron is forty-six, and Jeff Daniels is sixty-seven. Man, forty-six. She's so much older than us. <laughs> she must a, have been. Well, I don't know. I'm. Not, I don't. Not going to do the math because I'm too tired. But well, it's a. She very it's young. She's forty-six movie. and twenty-two. This was ninety-seven, so that was. God, 15 years ago. Um, so 46, she would have been 31. 31 years old in this movie. She looks much younger than 31 in that she movie. She does. She looks like she's like 23. <laughs> it's like, exactly. I, I would yeah, say like, sure. well, she talked about, she talks in the movie about how she broke down in this little town on the way back from college. And I just remember thinking, what, like two weeks ago? <laughs> right, she she yeah, looks yeah. so, so little in this movie. But, um, but yeah, she... I thought that their their chemistry was nice. Um, again, I I feel like the character of Tiffany could have been played just a little bit better, where you don't just absolutely hate her from the get go. But maybe that was intentional. Um, yeah, I guess all, they probably made her so horrible because, <laughs> I mean, really, what happens is Charlie cheats on his fiance and then w- was going to go back to his fiance and then she was just so horrible to him that he's like oh yeah i guess i really don't need to keep her around and i'll go to this other girl who's a better fit for him and you know if just like play through that way uh, <laughs> they try in an effort to give no sympathy whatsoever to the fiance they just turn the knob all the way to awful yeah yeah, because otherwise that was my read on it. You're absolutely right. Yeah, Charlie basically just abandons his fiance like right before they get married, mm-hmm. and 
Also, I mean, abandons his job, you know, where he had just been made partner. It's really, right. he, it's really right. an irresponsible move on his part. Right. But, uh, in fact, he can't even work in uh, Nevada because we know he doesn't have a bar license there. That's right. And we also know that unlicensed practice of law is a big deal. Yep, that's right. We've learned so, both uh, of these things in the movie. So I guess you don't really know where, where everything's going to go from here. But uh, but in the end, Richard does ride off into the sunset with uh, with Elizabeth on on her, her motorcycle, where she's been like this mysterious figure riding across the desert on a motorcycle a few times throughout the movie. Uh, shows her, her sort of wild, mysterious side. But, you know, all in all, I um, I don't have anything else really to uh, to add positive or negative. This uh, This was a movie. I watched it, and I wasn't sad that I watched it. <laughs> How's that for a glowing review? What's your so? If you had to give it a star rating, so, yeah, I guess star rating. I guess since we're talking reviews, let's let's get to our verdict. The defense rests, and I'll go first. My star rating for this one. I guess I will uh, preface this by saying this movie was. Um, was not successful. The budget was twenty five million, and the box office was fourteen and a half million. Uh, Richard Ebert actually did Rod Richard Roger Ebert actually did give it a positive review, three out of four stars. But other than that, uh, not a whole lot of critical success. Uh, they compared it unfavorably to My Cousin Vinny because again, Jonathan Lynn's earlier movie, and. Uh, on Rotten Tomatoes, it's sitting at a 50% where generally the consensus is that the movie gets some laughs out of the comedic chemistry between its pleasantly mismatched leads, although the results are still somewhat less than memorable. And I'd say that's about right. I, uh, if I never watched this movie again, I don't feel like I'd be missing much, but if it were on and I ended up watching it at a hotel or on a plane or something like that, I, I could probably enjoy myself. Um, I think I'm going to give this one three, a three out of four, three out of five stars. I don't think it was bad by any means, but I, I would watch either of the other two movies that we've watched so far before I watch this one again. So interesting. Vinny was a five, a uh, few good men was a four. I'll, I'll give this, since I'm not doing half stars just yet, I'll give this one a three. <laughs> <laughs> See, it's go well. I don't, I don't have to give stars, but if I was going to give this a star, I think I would probably do like a three and a half because I was, I went with uh, low expectations or maybe even, yeah, I went in with pretty low expectations because I just <laughs> expected like, I envisioned like liar liar only with a different cast. Oh, gotcha. Something that's just kind of uh, totally ridiculous or whatever, and so I was pleasantly surprised throughout the entire time, and then. Once I started to see all of the uh, surprisingly good, <laughs> surprisingly uh, honest legal stuff worked in, uh, so that earned a lot of goodwill too. So I, I actually enjoyed it way more than I was expecting to. Not that I didn't think it was going to be uh, painful to watch, but I just I was it was a different movie. I came away with a different movie than I was expecting. Yeah. Okay. Cool. So yeah. Gotcha. But as far as the the legal verdict, yeah, when you weigh all of the um, uh, all of the evidence, all the pros and cons that you mentioned. What is your verdict? Yeah, and I think the the more I think about it for these movies, I think they're going to typically be pretty bad at um, <laughs> uh, you know their legitimacy, and maybe it's not fair to to use that to kind of guide my verdict. But 
I just was, again, my, my expectations were far exceeded. So I think I'm going to give this one a, uh, a not guilty. I'm going to find this, this, um, the, 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 the truth to legal, whatever. I got to find a better shorthand for this, but, um, I thought they did <laughs> a think, good job. Yeah. I think not guilty works, uh, w- with the one obvious glaring problem aside <laughs> that's kind of the basis for <laughs> right. the whole movie the the fact that the yeah i mean you know <laughs> they and ultimately they they end up prevailing by lying their way through and and you know get scot get away scot-free with yeah. their which they wouldn't have been able to do if they hadn't so done it right so <laughs> right right but yeah i think i mean i'm just gonna i'm gonna have to focus on probably the the um the trees for the forest and start like actually just yeah, focus on these details. Take and, things into take context into uh-huh, uh, into consideration uh-huh. and stuff yeah. like that. Say, so, okay, yeah. Because yeah. you have to overlook the guy falling through the ceiling and you have to look overlook the meltdown of both the judge and the prosecutor and things like that. <laughs> but as far as just like the small legal stuff, sure. Did a good job. <laughs> all right. Not all right. guilty. Well and again it's like uh, not guilty by by attrition because slowly slowly your cynicism was chipped away whereas in the last movie we watched a few good men it was the opposite it's like gradually throughout uh-huh. the film there's just more and more that kind of little things that pile on and then at the end the right. whole the whole turning point of the movie is basically predicated on badgering the witness so you can't really let right, that one slide right. so yeah. yeah i think yeah. Uh, i think we've got some we've got some consistency here so right at the very least, it was guilty of a lesser included offense, meaning, you know, <laughs> let's say they were charged with murder, they got, you know, manslaughter. <laughs> All right. All right. Well, again, uh, glowing, glowing review. If you have not watched <laughs> this movie yet, I'm kind of surprised because we, I mean, we, we tell you, watch the movies before we talk about them because we're going to totally spoil them. And the, the way that we refer to the movies, you're probably not going to know much of what's going on if you just come into the show cold. But that's uh, true. Yeah. So speaking of which, what movie do you, so I don't think we're going to, I don't think we're going to get an episode in by the last Monday in April. You mentioned that you're going to be really busy with work. I've got a bunch of stuff going on. April is, maybe the busiest month of my year. So we'll go ahead and postpone this to sometime in May. I know our trailer says the last Monday of every month, but I tell you what, moving forward, we'll just commit to a podcast a month <laughs> and and see what we can do. What movie do, uh, since I picked this one, what movie do you want our, us and our listeners to watch next time? Well, I've, I'm consulting my list here and, uh, on one hand, I like to kind of alternate between comedy and serious, but on the other hand, that would sort of make you have to pick only comedy movies and me and you only would have serious to, you would movies. Be the downer, yeah. <laughs> so exactly. So I'm going to pick a movie that I have not seen before, and it is a comedy, and um, it was just something that I saw when I was flipping through the channels, and there is one specifically uh, somewhat notorious scene in it and that movie is from the hip from the hip okay mm-hmm 1987 starring uh, uh god what is his name judd nelson from uh breakfast Club oh wow and whatever else john hurt ray walston okay okay I've never seen so this we'll movie. So we'll see. Before. I have no exp- I have no idea. 
Could be good, could be bad. It's, we'll uh, find out together. It's sitting at a 27 on Rotten Tomatoes, so we'll see. <laughs> <laughs> this could be this could be a different kind of fun. Oh, boy. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, so next time we're going to watch From the Hip, 1987, uh, starring Judd Nelson. And... Yeah, so hopefully uh, let us know what you all thought of Trial and Error. Um, I I will also recommend uh, the TV show, the Netflix – I think it was Netflix show of the same name that aired a few years ago. First, uh, first season starring John Lithgow as the defendant and second season starring um, – oh, what's her name? Uh, Kristen Chenoweth as the defendant, and I don't know who plays hmm. any of like the legal team. Um, they all do a great job, but but the defendants are really the ones that sell these these shows. It's really really hilarious. I recommend everybody check it out. But uh, let us know what you thought of the movie Trial and Error, and uh, let us know if you have any any movies that you would like us to watch. You can find us on Discord. You can find uh, you can find me on Twitter at vgmpod, and. Um, Mr. Dadayan, where can our folks find you? You can find me on Twitter not talking about legal things at the Dyad. <laughs> uh, you can also find me on various discords. I bebop around occasionally. Yep. Uh, also the Dyad. So and you can find me in my local supermarket, which I will not disclose the location of. Yeah. But if you happen to uh, to hear hear him talking to the cashier about uh, about a head of lettuce and you recognize mm-hmm. his voice, don't give away a secret mm-hmm. identity. <laughs> yeah. You'll know me because the, the cashier will be asleep. <laughs> All right. Yeah. Well, thank you very much, sir. I guess uh, until next time, we can consider this case closed. Gavel sound effect. Hey, we have a sign-off. all right well cool all right i'm stopping my recording that was fun didn't stretch on too long you're just lying in general now no no that's it charlie i said i was you now you get to be me you're richard rietti another lawyer you come with me to court we'll straighten this whole thing out i gotta be you